Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast, hosted by three friends who were brought together by their heroin-addicted partners. We became each other's biggest support through some of life's toughest times. We're not licensed professionals, and nothing in this conversation is professional advice. But we hope our stories offer a glimpse into how these issues weave into our everyday lives. You're not alone. We can all get through it together. If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining our virtual support group. For details, visit us at recovering2.com. We know what you're going through and we're here to help. We're Recovering Too. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are so, so excited for our guest today. It is Dr. Carolyn Greer, who uh, is a part of the Bowen Recovery Center. And uh, she was highly recommended from us from uh, Dr. Kelly, who uh, a lot of our partners have seen uh, down in Indianapolis. And so we're so excited to have you on and kind of give us more of the uh, scientific uh, items around addiction and about, uh, you know, what is Suboxone? Like, what, what do those things do kind of in your brain? And things like that. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. So would you mind kind of just uh, starting off and telling us a little bit about you, maybe how you got into this field, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, So um, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and um, ended up in the Midwest for college uh, in Muncie, Indiana. I went to Ball State to to, uh, run track and uh, be an architect major. And uh, I have a twin brother who went to um, Alabama um, and was a business administration major. And then both of us around our senior year were like, I don't, man, I don't know if this world is cut out for us in this sector. So um, we both took kind of like a gap year um, and uh, went to grad school to get some medical things and stuff like that. And ended up both going to medical school. Um, I went to Indiana and, and my brother went to Alabama and now he's a vascular surgeon. And, um, uh, when I graduated, I originally went into, um, general surgery for a year and then I did OBGYN and I actually practiced, um, OBGYN for about 12, 13 years. Um, and then, uh, my son, Micah was born and, uh, we have four kids. He's our youngest and, um, he ha- has autism and is deaf. And, uh, that was kind of a trying uh, time at the time we were my husband is also a physician and we were both uh, uh, were in private practice in a small town um, in Kokomo and uh, very very busy and and we could handle three kids just fine but the fourth one kind of made things kind of challenging and I think you can know a lot of women say when you're at work you feel like you should be at home when you're at home you feel like you should be at work and mm-hmm. um, I, I did that on steroids so um, uh, I left uh, work for a little while. And, um, when I went back, I started back at IU, um, just doing like, uh, academic medicine more than anything else. And, and just in my heart really didn't feel like I, that this is what I was supposed to do. So, um, I've known Tim Kelly, uh, Becky's husband for a long time through some nonprofits we've worked on. And, um, uh, 
And he, I remember in like, I think it was 2011, he said, he's like, well, you should go into addiction medicine. And I'm like, I can't, I'm not a primary care doctor. Only primary care doctors can do that. And he's like, no, you, anyone can. It's a very open field, which it was at the time (laughs) because there was nobody to do it. So, um, so I did kind of a, a a fellowship with Dr. Kelly um, at the time was at Fairbanks and um, uh, started dabbling around and things to do. Um, Like, what do I do now? And so the, the first thing I did was I worked for a nonprofit um, with getting medical services for people coming home from prison. Um, And I, I did that for about two years. And then I started working a little bit everywhere. I think one year I had like six W-2s because I (laughs) worked um, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. sort of contracted in um, different outpatient offices providing addiction recovery services, some um, inpatient treatment. I moonlighted a lot of places um, for coverage. Um, And uh, one of the, my favorite things I did was I worked for um, drug court and reentry court in Howard County in Superior Court One. So I was there you know, psychiatry, a provider and stuff like that. So um, our, uh, our Republican governor, who's, he's a moderate and he just won't admit it. Um, one of the things he did when he came into office in 2016 was identify that we have a lot of barriers to um, addiction recovery services that are, are artificial and sort of born in outdated science and history. And specifically, one of the things he said was, you know, we only have 11 opiate treatment programs. And I think most people would identify those as a place where you um, receive methadone, sometimes suboxone, but mostly methadone for treatment. And at the time, we only had 11. And in 2007, they put a moratorium on them in Indiana, as I said, no more, Um, which probably wasn't a bad idea because a lot of them were um, for profit, cash only, you know, get your medicine and get out kind of thing, Um, low barriers, meaning probably, probably treating a lot of people. If you could pay, you were, it was fine to come on in. Um, But the spirit of an opiate treatment program, you know, on the coast, they're run a lot differently um, is, you know, uh, instant access, evidence-based care, high, high resources, lots, you know, that kind of thing. And so he um, said, we can, we're going to open five more before 2018, but they're only going to be affiliated with hospitals or community mental health centers or nonprofits. Um, you know, we're going to just bump the standard up a lot. And so the Bowen Center, which is, the, the you know, in Indianapolis, might even though we are in Indianapolis, but they're more of Northern Indiana, but they're the largest community mental health center in the state. And um, so they were approached and said, you know, you need to do this. And, um, at the time, I, you know, because I, you know, my colleagues now, a lot of them, I, I really feel like I, I'm not sure how you did psychiatry and completely ignore substance use disorders, but it can be done. <laughs> Key point, if someone's really depressed and they're not getting better, you might want to inquire on other things, but. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. Um, but, but they had taken the Bowen center themselves had taken a little dip into office-based treatment for opiate use disorders in 2016. Um, and so our CEO at the time said, Nope, I, this is where I want the center to go. This is the direction. And so he threw his hat into the ring. And, um, and so that's when the Bowen recovery center opened, which is, um, uh, we only use methadone because we have an outpatient office a mile away that uses buprenorphine and naltrexone and stuff. So, um, and so they asked me to come there and, uh, you know, I live in Kokomo or in Rooshville actually. And then I drive to 
Fort Wayne every morning to start work at 5 a.m. So (laughs) that's a commute. The the struggle is real. Uh, Mm -hmm. Telemedicine has been a nice thing for for me. But um, so we when we opened that and now the Bowen Center is in again, they're in 39 different counties. And um, uh, so so in the morning I work at the Bowen Recovery Center. And we started with zero patients in June of 2018, and now we have 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, we get the hours of an opiate treatment program like from 5 to 1 p.m. So at 1, then I go over to, into my outpatient psychiatry role um, and see patients in different counties, um, Wabash, LaGrange, Huntington, Fort Wayne, that kind of thing, um, and do office-based uh, treatment, uh, psychiatry, but a lot of it's obviously heavy on substance use. So, Wow. Um, so my, awesome. uh, yeah, my husband is an internist and he is leaving his current job. He works for community um, health positions and has been there for a long time. So he is leaving his last day will be the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And he's actually um, joining the Bowen center as their director of integrative health. So um, people with mental illness and people with substance use disorders have it typically do not get um, good health care for things like diabetes, high blood pressure, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's, you know, even when they have good treatment for mental illness, their life expectancies are shortened dramatically because of that. So um, the Bowen Center has opened a health clinic in Warsaw, which is where our headquarters are. And then, a, and then they're opening another one in Fort Wayne. And he is going to be the director of all the health centers with the goal of one being in every one of our county offices in the next five wow. years. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it sounds like that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, you can't just like focus on one aspect mm-hmm. of a person, like yeah. everything so intertwined and, you know, this thing here affects how you do this over here. Exactly. And so that exactly. makes a lot of sense. And it's like, why hasn't it always been? That <laughs> well, I think oh. they've done it the opposite in primary care offices, they've tried to intertwine psychiatry. So when you go to your primary care physician and say, you know, I've been really depressed, there's a, there's a seamless handoff to a, someone who provides mental health services. Um, but the other way around is, is not done as much. So, um, and my, you know, my patients who have long, who have been in long-term recovery or long-term not recovery, but have been in treatment for a long time, their, their physical health is, waning. If you, I think you go back, you know, 10, 15 years where a lot of my patients, their active addiction started in a primary care office where they were indiscriminately prescribed opioid pain relievers, stimulants, benzodiazepines, that kind of stuff. And then you get, you know, kicked out of that doctor. So when you live in a small town like Wabash, I have a lot of patients who say, I can't go to anywhere. I've been kicked out of every office because I either owe money or I, you know, called in my own Percocet or something like that. But you know, um, in smaller towns, access is, is very limited. So um, you know, I struggle. And, and then sometimes I, as a psychiatrist, end up taking care of diabetes, which, you know, I, luckily I have the hotline to Jerry Greer, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm not really well versed. Yeah. <laughs> That's not my, like, my thing. So, um, so it will be nice to have, you know, so we have someone in Warsaw now and then have someone in Fort Wayne and then in all our offices to say, let's have you go over to the health clinic, same thing easy access, just walk on in, they'll get you taken care of. So it's amazing. Exciting times. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. I'm curious. So like, I guess let's maybe start at the basics. Can you like explain a medical professional view, like, you know, why addiction is considered a disease? 
So, so I always talk about like psychiatry is, is like a cookbook of medicine. You know, we, we doing the exams, not easy, but, but when you get the, the information, we make diagnoses based on meeting criteria. Um, and so, uh, the criteria for any substance use disorder, whether it be opioids, tobacco, um, stimulants, benzodiazepines, is always an 11 criteria. And then, you know, if someone has two or three, it's mild, four or five is moderate, and then six plus is severe. So when we look at what is the criteria for a substance use disorder, um, we, you know, using substances is not necessarily part of it, um, or that's not the only thing, meaning, you know, not everybody who um, drinks alcohol has an alcohol use disorder. Um, not everybody who has negative consequences, like it's a DUI, has an alcohol use disorder, that kind of thing. Um, and then there can be people who seem like they don't have any consequences, but when you really dive into it, or dive deep into it, you see um, that uh, someone who's using substances and, and it's different than someone. So, because there's a lot of people who will use um, things for non-medical use uh, who don't really meet the criteria for having an actual substance use disorder. Now we know about 10% of our adult population does meet the criteria for moderate to severe, but some of the things are, and I think if you have, if you have history with someone you love, you would say, yep, yep, yep. Um, is you know using longer than you planned on um, or using more than you planned on. Um, not being able to cut down despite negative consequences, uh, having cravings um, for a substance, because the, the idea of cravings is very unique for people with a substance use disorder. Um, most people, not most people, but a, a big portion of adults in America um, probably drank um, at some period in their time, you know, a lot. Um, if you talk about people my age, you know, in my early 50s, there's a lot of people who um, in the, in the nineties used cocaine, um, mm -hmm. which, uh, but what the difference between having an actual substance use disorder versus just, you know, things that we use for adolescents, like they're experimenting or anything like that is that, you know, the first time, you know, my friends got a DUI or the first time they, their partner said, this has got to stop or you're out, um, or they were late to work, or they realized that they spent their entire paycheck, you know, before they, th then they stopped because they had a consequence. So the, when someone has a substance use disorder, that, that part of the brain that says, this is bad, you need to stop, doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that um, people who uh, have someone that they love or someone who has been in an active addiction in the past too can identify that, say, I, you know, I, I, I tell families a lot when someone says, I'm not going to ever use again, I, I would not doubt the, the, the honesty and sincerity of those statements, but with untreated, with an untreated substance use disorder and completely treated that, that, that part of your brain that makes those decisions and sticks to them and weighs consequences and stuff like that just simply doesn't work very well. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, and then the other criteria, you know, failing in your roles, you know, skewing social things that you enjoy, um, taking risks is a big thing, you know, taking risks that you normally wouldn't take. So sometimes I say, you know, when you have a moral compass as a person, and you don't use that compass when it comes to using drugs. Um, that's obviously something that is much like many other medical illnesses. We have diabetes, heart disease, asthma, um, that, uh, that, you know, you don't really have control over it. So, which is different than someone who, you know, makes a bad decision or something like that. Um, actually being diagnosed with a substance use disorder is not about decision-making 
as far as your actions with drugs, not decision-making and engaging in treatment. That's a different story. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Cause I feel like sometimes you hear a lot of people who just think like, Oh, addiction is a moral failing or like, well, they chose to do this like, and why can't they just stop? And they, sure. they don't seem to understand that it, it goes beyond that. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, we, we can, we can compare a, a substance use disorder with other chronic medical illnesses that don't have a cure but can be put in remission um, over a period of time with appropriate treatment. Um, you know, one that I look at a lot is like, let's say diabetes. Um, now we know that there's a huge, for at least, you know, type two diabetes, there's a huge genetic component to it. Um, we do know that uh, there's a lot of lifestyle modifications or intentional modifications that people can make to reduce the severity of that disease um, or even prevent it from occurring. Um, and, uh, but, and that's the same thing with the, with the substance use disorder. You know, we, the difference is, is if someone um, is not taking all the steps to um, remain in treatment or remission for their substance use disorder, then they're bad. They chose that. They deserve everything they got. But, you know, when we have a, you know, 300 pound type two diabetic who at 40 years old is, you know, having their toes amputated and has chronic renal insufficiency, that's because they just have bad health. Mm-hmm. And, we send them a card when they're in the hospital. <laughs> so when the, someone with a heroin use disorder, we send to jail. So um, mm-hmm. it, it really, it really, and then when we look at like how it impacts society, well, untreated chronic medical illnesses negatively impact our society just as much, if not more than substance use disorders, as far mm-hmm. as overutilization of healthcare, lost work, not being able to take, take care of your social roles of your family, um, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, I think sometimes families understand that better because everybody and everyone's family has someone who has an incompletely treated medical illness um, that's related to inability to jump in on, you know, going to meet with your diabetic educator, working on stopping smoking, exercising, those kinds of things. Everybody can identify with someone like that in their family. Um, even, you know, the one thing they always say, they're like, well, cancer cancer is a chronic disease and no one chose to get cancer. I'm like, there's not very many cancers in our country that are not, especially in adults that are not related to some lifestyle choice. So um, it might not be the only thing, but, but there was, it was a contribution to it. So. um, so Thank you. I think that was a a wonderful explanation. I know uh, when we, my husband and I, when we kind of first started in this path and, you know, I was trying to wrap my head around, like, this is a disease it was like, this is a disease and going to meetings is your medicine. So that for me in the beginning really helped me kind of wrap my head around that is how you kind of keep healthy and keep keep on this path. I would say it's like, it's understanding or having like, I we've talked a lot about comparing it to diabetes or something similar on this podcast actually, but when things are really bad or when... I'm taking his actions personally, like if there's a relapse or something, it really helps to remember that he's not doing this to hurt my hurt me. He's not doing this to, I mean, he's, he's like, to just going to think of it as a disease and think of it as like, you know, he's kind of out of control. Like he's not at the helm of this. Um, now he can choose, like you mentioned, choosing to get treatment is a, is a, is a choice, but those obsessions and all that stuff, like he's not necessarily controlling that he can prevent them by doing certain things. Um, but I don't, I don't know, just that idea of 
really thinking of it as a disease and not a moral failing and not like a like oh he's just trying to blow up our marriage or our family like he doesn't value us and he doesn't he's not grateful for you know whatever so I I think that's been really helpful so the way you described it I wish someone would have described that that way to me way early on (laughs) but I think that's really really helpful to have like I think it allows compassion easier and um, allows you to kind of try to understand a little bit better um, when it's a topic that not many people truly understand and it it has been so stigmatized to be um, just something negative like it's that you cause yourself and all of that so yeah that's what I was thinking with the like the stigma associated you know and Mm -hmm. when Dr. Greer, Greer mentioned like with diabetes like you know people kind of have like lapses with that or they end up in the hospital and they get a card, but then on the addiction side, you know, they're punished. And I feel like a lot of that is just related to, to the stigma. So I don't know, are there, speaking of stigma, are there any suggestions or things that you think we should be doing as a society to help like reduce the stigma and improve that? Well, you know, I think when you guys entered this, this treatment, you know, the kind of thing, I would say that the people who are providing the treatment stigmatized and stuff like that. And, and, and if you, you know, I, I work with people who their only qualification to work with people with substance use disorders is the fact that they had one themselves 30 years ago. And that's how treatment was in the past. And the, I think even if, if you know anyone who's been through treatment in 2010, 11, 12, that kind of thing, that the, the, the approach to treatment was, um, you know, if you, if you want this, you'll stop um, negative consequences so if someone has, you know, if someone uses word, like even in like a residential, you know, have you wear a sign around your neck saying I'm a liar or something like that, you know, if, if anyone who's been in treatment over 10 years ago or later will tell you that the approach was one of shaming, this is you, let's, let's weed out all those lies, um, let's, you know, get honest and, and that kind of thing. Um, and you know, now that we've, now that we've poured, I think in the opiate crisis had a lot to do with this. And we realized that this was not just affecting people who are black or brown and poor and said it was affecting everybody largely because the medical community, you know, threw some kerosene on a fire and said, here, let's give Percocet to everybody who has ankle pain. Um, then when, mm-hmm. then when it starts to affect a larger portion of society, then all of a sudden now we start looking at it better. And we realize that, um, people who are affected by a, you know, moderate serious substance use disorder have a lot of similar criteria and being a bad person isn't one of those, um, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that they, you know, almost uniformly have a genetic infiltration. So they, they can identify someone in their family, extended family who has struggled with a substance use disorder. The, the mm-hmm. part of the brain that's jacked up is the same for no matter what, um, and then that they almost uniformly had early exposure. Um, we know that the part of your brain that helps you make good decisions is not fully developed until you're 25 or so. So when, you know, adolescents are exposed to these substances, when they don't have that, that part, you know, their frontal cortex isn't developed all the way. It, when you start talking to people who are 30 and um, continue to use opioids, almost, almost uniformly, and this is what I do for a living, everybody has got strong family history has been exposed to an early age um, and then probably has some kind of trauma in their life. And I, and um, you know, we, when we look at trauma, it doesn't always have to be a victim of like, you know, severe abuse. It can be, 
you know, uh, divorce in the family, um, having um, emotional needs not met as a young child. A lot of people with substance use disorders have some mood disorders that were not properly taken care of when they were younger, anxiety, depression. Um, uh, so when you start looking at these things, and then sometimes it helps to look at like someone who's not affected by substance use and find out that maybe they didn't experience those things in their lifetime. So you've got sort of this setup um, and treatment now looks at that. And I always say it's, it's not what did you do, but what happened to you in the first place. And, mm. um, but in the past 10 years ago, that really wasn't what it was like. It was the, you know, the tough love, the, you know, there'll be a consequence for everything. And, you know, I believe that consequences are important, but they're not consequences of pain. A lot of times they're consequences to protect other people when you're, when your illness is not. So when you get, you step away from a relationship for a while, that's not a punishment because if punishments worked, you know, you do them all the time, they don't, but it's a protecting yourself um, at the, at the time. Cause if you're, if you stay sick, then the relationship never gets better. So, um, yeah. So That's things true. have changed right. a lot um, as far as, you know, what's our goal of treatment, the stigma. Um, in 2015, John Kerry, who's a, a researcher in Harvard, actually came out with the first position paper that said we need to change our language about how we talk about, you know, basically mental illness in general, but specifically substance use disorders and um, things like calling you know, people addicts or saying they had a dirty, d- dirty drug screen and stuff like that, that we when we use non-stigmatizing language and stigmatizing language, people will respond differently. And they'll say this person is someone sick who needs help versus this is someone who's bad who needs punishment. Um, now that's tricky when you've been in this field for a long time. You know, I have, you know, I have nurses who've worked, they've done nothing but mental health for 30 years and they'll walk into my office and they're like, yeah, they had a dirty drop again. And, you know, it's hard for me to, you know, speak the truth <laughs> in love, but still speak the truth <laughs> without, you know, alienating them or anything like that. And I'm like, oh, you know, you mean they had a positive drug test, that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. we know that um, that when we use non-stigmatizing language, then people feel like they're getting help for a medical problem versus, you know, they're, you know, at jail, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. and yeah. it's hard. It's really hard. It would, especially people who worked in this for a long time, um, but uh, it could be done. I, you know, I did it. It was, it wasn't easy. I found myself, you know, be like, oh God. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I was thinking, yeah. I think it's, you know, what you're saying about hard in the medical field when you've worked in it so long, I think also on our side, um, mm-hmm. it can be hard, um, just like our loved ones, you know, you go to, they go to meetings and they talk more mm-hmm. in like the slang terms about yep. themselves. And I think it's always a little bit more accepted when you are the one talking about yourself in a certain way, mm-hmm. but then, you know, you kind of pick up on that language um, and so actually, can, can you just remind us like what the recommended like medical terms and things are? Yeah. We yeah. So, try and use? so, so, you know, the, some of the big ones are called at, like, you know, I'm an addict and, and you're right because in 12 step communities, that's how you, you know, there's a reason for that too. It's not to be demoralizing. It's to remind myself in the law, you know, the end don't ever forget that I have an illness and stuff. And, and it's kind of worried you to say, you know, hi, my name is John and I have a opiate use disorder. <laughs> it's easier <laughs> to say, my name's John, I'm an addict. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's kind of a respected tradition and that's tough. I, sometimes I'll tell my patients though, you know, because like I had a, I had a patient I saw on Friday and she said she's getting, she's getting bariatric surgery, um, which, you know, her, she's has, 
obesity, it's negatively impacting her diabetes and her health and stuff. And she said, well, I just want to know what to do about my methadone with this. And I said, well, you know, your doctor, your surgeon will know that. And she goes, oh, well, I haven't told them. And I said, you know, you didn't tell me to take methadone. And she's like, no, but I'm now I'm worried that it might not absorb well after I have surgery. And I'm like, that's a reasonable care. But she told me, this is someone who's been in long-term recovery, like 11 years or something like that, who is, you know, who's had unspeakable trauma growing up as far as abandonment, sexual and physical abuse. Um, she's a person of color. And then now she, you know, has, she takes care of her children. She has a full-time job. She participates in a real rigorous treatment program. And she said, well, I just, I just know that I, I don't want them to look at me differently. I know that I'm a bad person and all this stuff. And she really believed that um, because that's what society has told her. Um, and so, it's it, that's why I sometimes I have patients talk about themselves differently too and say I am a person who has a chronic medical illness I work tirelessly to make sure that it stays in remission society doesn't make it easy for me um, to get these get this health care you know they they throw up artificial roadblocks all over the place and yet here I am still killing it that kind of thing so so yeah, that's, some, that's really on, interesting like, who you're talking to and the setting uh-huh. and yeah yeah yeah. So, and then it's tough when you have, you know, their family doesn't necessarily treat it that way. Um, if someone is still involved in the criminal justice system, certainly, you know, we have to remember that the goals of people who work in criminal justice are different than the goals of medical people. Um, and so they, you know, they certainly aren't going to use that kind of language, even though some court systems do, um, are getting better. Um, but I, I think one of the biggest things is, is addicts, you know, the word addict and stuff, which again is tricky because that is, that's, you know, N-A-A-A-C-A-N-A, that's all, it's, it's your, your classic language, all their literature is written that way still. Um, but, it, um, but I think, you know, if you, if someone is struggling with self-worth and, and poor identification and stuff like that, sometimes you know, say I'm a person with a chronic medical illness, I'm a person with a substance use disorder, I've kept it in remission with treatment, appropriate treatment. Um, I think calling, you know, drug tests dirty and, and clean is, is, is very demoralizing. And we've shown this time and time and time again, when you talk about someone who had a dirty drug test versus it was positive. You know, I always tell my patients that, you know, the, I, I do drug testing one because I'm prescribing controlled substances. And I need to make sure that they're being taken. Um, <laughs> The, the other thing is, is I do drug testing because it's just like I would check your blood count if you had anemia. I want to see how my treatment's going and what we need to do. Um, I don't do drug testing to kick people out of treatment. Um, uh, that's, you know, that's just, that's not what we do. We might change the treatment a little bit if the treatment's dangerous. Um, but, uh, but we don't, we don't abandon people because they have a disease that's not remission right now. So, so using dirty and clean drug tests is a big one. Um, uh, those are the, those are the two biggest ones. I think, um, identifying, you know, anyone with a mental illness, like saying, you know, she's bipolar or that kind of thing. We, we know that, that, you know, she's someone with a, with bipolar disorder, that kind of thing. Yeah. We know that that's stigmatizing language. And again, we use mental illness terms all the time for people who don't really have them. So, you know, if you're happy in the morning, you're sad in the afternoon, you'll say, Oh, I'm so bipolar. Well, you know, someone who really has bipolar disorder, that's a debilitating illness and it's not being happy in the morning and sad in the afternoon. It is a, mm-hmm. it is a mood disorder that could be like devastating. Um, if not, even if treated well, it's really a struggle. Same thing with saying, Oh, I have OCD. I like my room to be clean. 
Well, that's not obsessive compulsive disorder. That's, you know, someone who truly meets a criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. It is exhausting and very hard to treat and that kind of thing. So sure. um, it, it's tricky though, because if you're, you don't want to be like, I mean, you, you should think about what you're saying all the time, but it's hard to, when you, when you hear someone else, but I, I challenge you next time you go to a meeting or something, listen to people talk and see what that conjures up in your mind a little bit. Yeah. And, Mm-hmm. Interesting. So one thing that you hit on that I think is really was would have been really important for me to know a long time ago is the stigma, especially when um, an, um, a person with substance abuse disorder is getting treatment in another way with a doctor that maybe doesn't have this experience. For example, my husband um, was on Vivitrol and yeah. broke his ankle. And so we went to the emergency room. He was obviously in a lot of pain. He was at like two days before his next shot. So kind of getting close to um, the point where that would wear off all this. But anyways, we had a really difficult time explaining to like getting the doctor and this medical staff to understand like what he was on and why they couldn't give him pain meds, you know, like why that would do nothing. And, and, um, and then two days after that, he had surgery. And it took me a lot of advocating of like, explaining to them, do you cannot prescribe us this? Like, what is what can like, they were just trying to give him the typical pain med prescription. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I had to turn it down three times to eventually when I got the doctor to say, okay, I'll give you six pills. And that was a fine. Okay, a compromise, like it's reasonable that he might need them today. But we need a plan for tomorrow. And then when he's, he can get that shot again, you know, this whole thing. So what would your advice be to um, both recovering people, but also their family members in these different environments on how to best advocate for the appropriate healthcare in these situations. Um, when it feels like, you know, I know that not every medical field is equal. Like not everyone knows. You, you mentioned that, you don't. You know, diabetes is not your mm-hmm. thing, you, you know, mm-hmm. an emergency doctor probably, you know, addiction medicine probably isn't necessarily something that there's they specialize in so what would your advice be to kind of advocate for yourself in these different areas to not get yourself into a bad position where you're walking home with a 30 pill pain prescription when that might not be appropriate for you Yeah, because it's really frustrating when the doctors just tell you we'll just have them take it as prescribed yeah that's exactly i think of that like Uh, that's not how this works yeah. (laughs) yeah Well, and it goes and it goes back and forth too because, um, and you're right, extended release naltrexone, Vivitrol, and even you know treating people with Suboxone and Methadone too. There's a lot of um, on both sides of the spectrum. The the other one is is you know let's say someone has major surgery and they're treated with methadone and they say, well, that should take care of your pain. Well, we we know Suboxone and Methadone don't take care of pain. They're that's a baseline. That's a maintenance. It's not for that. and it's getting better. I'll tell you that much. It's, it's getting a little bit better that, you know, I, I get less phone calls about um, uh, how to manage pain um, in emergency situations or postoperatively or from dentists. Um, so that part's getting a little bit better. But then on the flip side, like you said, it's still bad. You know, I have patients who, you know, I, you know, I, I pull inspect, which is our prescription drug monitoring program on my patients very frequently because I, that's, I'm prescribing the medicine. So I have to look at it and I'll be like, why did someone give you 40 Percocet? Well, I had a tooth pulled and I'm like, okay, well, you know, dentist, you don't need to prescribe opiates for, you know, tooth extractions. We treat that with anti-inflammatories and steroids, not opioids. And, and 
But on the flip side, dentists who don't prescribe pain medicine find themselves not as busy as the ones who do. So, um, <laughs> so that's a that's a that's a tricky population to work with. I there's a law in Indiana now that you have to have two hours of opioid um, prescribing to renew your license, and so uh, you know in the last three years, I've been on the speaker circuit a lot to dentist meetings, pediatrician meetings, family practice meetings, because I can, you know, give them their talk that will satisfy those requirements. And the dentist, I tell you, um, I'm like, you guys, you, you guys do know that you have a big, significant role in this opioid crisis, and you're not doing anything to make it better. Um, but I will tell you, you know, I practiced medicines in the late 90s, in a woman taking in a field of taking care of women and uh, it is a lot easier first of all I didn't know anything about substance use disorders at all like I knew nothing whatsoever I had no idea that you know prescribing Vicodin with refills was a bad idea and I wouldn't have recognized it if someone walked up to me and said I, I mean I, very, I remember specifically it was like in 2002 and a man said to me when can my wife go back to work after her surgery and I said well when her pain is controlled where she doesn't need to take pain medicines. And he goes, well, that will never happen because she takes pain medicines all day, every day. And I had nothing. I had absolutely wow. nothing. I didn't know how to refer, how to diagnose, how wow. to acknowledge. And I, you know, I also have a schedule where I was seeing 70 people a day. So I also didn't have time. Um, I mean, I did, but I didn't. Um, you know, the, the same thing would happen when patients, if you, anyone remembers back when you had prescription pads and you could write for 10 pills and someone could add a zero and make it a hundred and no one would even blink an eye. Well, and I'd have patients who would get caught doing that. And my response was punitive. Okay, now I'm doing surgery on you. I'm not writing you any pain medicines, which that's malpractice. You mm -hmm. know, they're, they're, you know, they did, they did something that probably demonstrated an illness that I was ill-equipped to diagnose or treat. And so my response will be to make another illness worse. Um, but that is, that was typical. Um, it, it definitely in the nineties and, and most of two, the early two thousands, um, and that was all wrong, but I didn't know. Now, luckily things are a lot different now. Um, but it's, it's, it's tricky because you would hope that, you know, we, Narcotics Anonymous has a, a information packet they call in times of illness. Now it's a little dated, but it talks a lot about, you know, when you're open and honest with your healthcare provider, then you can expect to get um, appropriate treatment. Well, in your experiences, that's not what happened. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, so that's when I think it's good to really be engaged with someone who practices evidence-based medicine, who can look at everything like, like doctors, Kelly, you know, Tim and, and Becky, um, or other, um, people in psychiatry and stuff to understand because, you know, a fracture that requires surgery is probably going to need some opioid pain relievers. It's just, mm -hmm. um, you know, it would be nice if you had, a physician who could help you. Um, you need to step up your meetings. You need to step up your talk with people who are in recovery. Um, you know, with when I prescribe uh, pain medicines, or I have patients who are prescribed pain medicines for surgery, it, I usually tell them, you know, I don't want you to hold this medicine. I want you to give it to someone, um, not a loved one who is so engaged in your <laughs> recovery, but an uninterested party. So those steps of having to well, I think I need some pain medicine. Well, it's not as easy as just, you know, reaching over on the bedside table and, and taking one or six pills. It's, I'm going to have to call someone. I'm going to have to tell them what's going on in my head. Um, and a lot of times that's enough to start firing up those recovery principles and keeping at bay um, some of the impulsive thoughts that come with having a substance use disorder, not how long or how, no matter how long you've been in treatment. So 
and it's and those are good conversations. Have I people when they go to treatment for the first time, everybody says, "What if I break my arm?" You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the first thing you're thinking. You know, when you just got out of you know detox. <laughs> what do you mean? No opiates the rest of my life? You know? and like, yeah. My, and, and my unprofessional response is, well, you don't have a broken arm right now. So let's move on a little bit to, mm-hmm. you know, parenting your children and yeah. employment and stuff like that. Right. But, yeah. um, but those are reasonable concerns. So, yeah. yeah. Now my husband's terrified of uh, being hurt on Vivitrol again. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's not, I mean, it is a, it's a tricky thing to handle and there's a lot yeah. of, you know, a lot of things, but those aren't like conversations I have with patients I treat with Vivitrol, like, should you sustain an orthopedic fracture? You need a regional block and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I will tell you if anyone's on, if anyone's on Vivitrol, that Alkermes, the company that makes it has a call center that a provider can call and say, I have a 27 year old male. He received his Vivitrol 11 days ago. He has a, you know, open femur fracture. What can I do? And they will talk them through. I think though, in 2020, anesthesiologists know, um, I would imagine emergency medicine knows, orthopedic surgery knows that kind of thing. But 10 years ago, what do you mean you took a shot? So, you you know, (laughs) nobody knew what it was. So, um, Mm -hmm. so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different now. Cause again, I used to get called all the time to, you know, we, I work in a, a bigger ER system and it doesn't happen too often anymore. Or if they call, they're like, this is the right thing to do. Right. I'm like, yeah, you're fine. Yeah. Can you tell us like how addiction affects your brain? I know that was a question I had for my husband when he kind of first went into it, like does heroin like change your brain past? Can he get that function back? Um, I don't know if it's different for like meth, cocaine, that kind of different things. Like how does that affect the brain? So, you know, not all, if, if a substance is misused or used for non-medical purposes, it, there's got to be something good about it, okay? No one would take, no one would use heroin if at all it caused was like burning pain in your side, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so, so we know that it's got to do something. And, and most drugs of, um, that can be misused, um, so definitely stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine or prescription stimulants, um, uh, opioids, definitely alcohol, we think too, even though it's not really clear cut, we think alcohol sort of starts some of those opioid chain reactions and stuff. The, the long, the long and the short of it is, is that, um, they make an, a more than physiological. So more than just your average dump of dopamine. And I'm sure you guys in your family group hear about dopamine all the time. It's if you take a standardized test, dopamine's always the answer. Um, <laughs> that's <in> psychiatry, <laughs> then they throw a bunch of other ones in there. But um, so what happens when someone, someone's use and well, you know, opioids are probably the, the best one is that they, maybe they use opioids for appropriate reasons. Like, um, I mean, in the past, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't hear about teenagers taking their parents' Percocet and stuff um, like we do now. I mean, a lot of patients I see their first exposure to opioids were my friends where we were just taking pills, not mm-hmm. I was 14 and tore my ACL and had surgery kind of thing. So your first exposure um, is a little bit different now. But pe- if you ask someone, and I ask every time I see someone with an opioid use disorder, the first time I'm like, what did it feel like the first time you took opioids? The answers are always the same you know, my anxiety went away. I had a warm feeling. I felt energetic. Um, big populations are moms who just had kids. And that's the first time, if you're a healthy person, that's usually the first time back in the day where we gave people 90 Percocet after an uncomplicated delivery. That's ridiculous, but we did it. 
<laughs> I own that one, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> we don't we don't do that anymore. So, but we used to. Um, and moms would say, maybe I had some depression after my baby was born, but then I took this pill and I had so much energy and everything was perfect. And not everyone responds that way to opiates. Some people will take an opiate, and their response will be. I feel nauseated, I feel itchy, I feel sleepy, I feel dizzy, and I don't want those anymore. Now, people with an opiate used to start being like, well, that's crazy, man, I'll take them, you know, that kind of thing. But, but most people don't respond the way that someone who has a substance use disorder does, that it's a very pleasurable experience. Over time, what happens before you start having withdrawal and stuff like that is that your brain doesn't know how to generate that dopamine spike that you have naturally with um, having sex, eating good food, being with your friends, um, those kinds of things, they don't have that. The only way they can get that response is by taking that substance. Um, the, the other thing is the dopamine reserves in the brain start to get depleted, especially with methamphetamines, the one that does the most of that, because there's so much dopamine involved with methamphetamines um, that eventually it gets depleted. And even without using, you can't feel any positive emotions for a while. Um, that's you know, I, what I tell patients a lot of times with methamphetamines is I'm like, you're never going to feel like you did when you're using meth again. Okay. That's just not going to happen. Um, now the advantages are that, you know, you're not in jail, you, you know, you don't, you know, you, your teeth are better though, you know, you have some good advantage for not using methamphetamine, but, um, but that experience, that dopamine surge with methamphetamine, obviously it had to be pleasurable for people to use a dirty, nasty medicine. Mm -hmm. So even in abstinence, it takes a while, you know, the, for the brain to balance again. And that's why a lot of people will say, I don't feel pleasure. I don't, you know, I don't feel happy. Um, I'm not using, I'm not in withdrawal. So, that, you know, I don't, my family's not threatening to take me to jail or something like that. So those parts are good, but the, I will never feel okay again. And that takes a while. People do recover. Um, but a lot of times it will take, it will take some time to get, get that back in balance. That's what addiction medicine is all about now is trying to find out a way to, um, sort of mitigate those negative emotions that go with abstaining from substances all of a sudden. Um, and we have some medicines, we have some antidepressants that specifically target dopamine and norepinephrine, um, that will maybe help a little bit, um, that we use, but, um, it, it's a big change in the brain. So and I'm sure that you, your personal experience with someone who's abstaining from a substance after using it for a long time is sort of a not great mood for a while. Yeah, I think yeah. Our, our... Oh, yeah, it yeah. took a while. <laughs> and that was even with using <laughs> some medication-assisted treatment, um, mm -hmm. which we've like touched on several different examples, like methadone and Vivitrol and things. And so that was another area I was hoping you could give a little bit more information on, on, I'm just like, what is sure. it and, and how does it work? And, and things like that. Sure. So one of the, one of the things, and I, I'm, I'm just rocking your world today with changing all your words, <laughs> but one of the things that we're trying <laughs> to do a little bit is, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, is that when people are treated with medicine, sometimes in the recovery community, they're sort of ostracized, like, well, you're a MAT person, so you're not really in treatment and stuff like that. So one of the other moves that we've been trying to make with how we talk is to um, not necessarily call it mat but instead to say you have a you have a you have a chronic medical illness and we're using medicines it, along with many many other interventions which is that's how we treat everything in medicine we use medicines we use um you know clinical things and we and we use lifestyle you know we, we use a whole bunch of things to make you better um 
because I will, I'll tell you like in where I work and pretty much everywhere I work, um, there's this siloing effect or ostracization of people who have a substance use disorder. Well, they're a yeah. MAC person. Um, where I work, they, when I first got there, they said, oh, they have to sign a MAT contract. And then this contract was just judgment. You know, I will pay on time if I, you know, if I lie about using that's all, you know, I'll get kicked out. You know, there's no other illness that we, we stop someone's care because they're sick like a substance use disorder, you know, imagine my husband, imagine if all his patients with high blood pressure, if they came in and their blood pressure was high and they were still smoking cigarettes and eating, you know, rallies, three meals a day and not exercising. And he said, you're out of here. You're, you know, you failed, failed your test. You're out. Well, that, that, that doesn't, wouldn't work. And that's not how people do. I mean, people don't stay in recovery for fear of losing access to treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, they, you know, they do other ways to do that, but not that. So, so this ostracization of like, you're a mat person. So somehow you're different than my patient with depression who didn't take their medicines, didn't go to therapy and then, you know, shows up for their three month appointment. They're a mess. Now, you know, am I going to kick them out because their illness is keeping them from doing the things that I suggested? Of course not. We would never do that. And we also don't mind make them sign a contract that says I will not use foul language in the waiting room because people <laughs> oh with mental God. illness don't always behave right. nicely when they're there, when they're not <laughs> doing well. So, but only, <laughs> only if you're prescribed Suboxone, do you have to sign that contract? And so, and again, Bowen Center is gigantic. It has taken a long time to try to change that around a little bit. I, I'll tell you, when I went to the Bowen Center, and this is not uncommon in other places, that they would routinely tell patients, you, uh, um, your, your insurance doesn't cover this because it was court ordered, which is not true. That's just not true. Um, or um, you have to pay for your drug test. Um, you know, you have to pay for it. And I'm like, if someone has Medicaid and they're like, you know, living below the poverty level, what makes you think they're going to be able to come up with 40 bucks every, you know, every week for a drug test that no insurance has covered that stuff for years, years and years and years and years. So, um, but that, that pervasive feeling that you use drugs. So somehow you're different than all the other sick people here. So we're going to make your treatment very punitive and black and white and, um, that, that feeling is everywhere. Um, it's, you know, even some of these pop-up Suboxone clinics that they have, I won't say my name, but you know, the, you pay your cash, you get your medicine. Those are all very punitive and, um, punishment based and stuff like that. And that's not yeah. medicine. I would take it another way that as a, as a doctor, if I decide for a non-medical reason to stop someone's treatment and then they turn around and have an overdose, I think that's on me. So um, you know, I prescribe a lot of medicine for patients who are still using, okay, because my medicine is might be the only thing that's keeping them alive until like you guys have experienced with your loved ones, until it clicks, but, but no one can get in recovery if they're dead. So, right. um, yeah, so, but so, so medicines that we use specifically for opiate use disorder, even though we use medicines for tobacco, we use it for alcohol, we're trying as hard as we possibly can to come up with medicines to treat stimulants, because that's a a huge problem right now, methamphetamine and, and um, cocaine, even a little bit, uh, you know, we've had more poisonings in Allen County where I live of methamphetamine than we have in opioids for the last six quarters. So, um, wow. and I, I think that reflects a little bit that there's so much treatment for opiate use disorders. It's very easy to access and that kind of thing that, um, but stimulants, we haven't quite came up with anything that's FDA approved. 
um, every November I go to a stimulant conference um, where we get like the cutting edge um, uh, medicines that maybe have been found to be helpful. Um, it's held in Miami, crazy. <laughs> Not this year, this year it's virtual, but normally it's held in Miami. But, um, but, but these medicines um, that we use for people that, that they're just like the medicines we use for depression, anxiety, um, asthma, that kind of thing. So essentially the way that medicines for opiate use disorder work, and you guys already touched, we have three of them, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone, um, that the, the main thing they do uniformly for all of them is they prevent death from overdose. And so that's your baseline. If my treatment's doing that, then we keep the treatment going. Okay. Um, because like we said, it takes a long time for those, those changes in the brain to happen. Um, it's like turning a cruise ship around in a, in a, in a harbor. It's very, very, it's very slow. Um, and so, but as we've experienced, especially in Indiana and around like 2015, 16, stuff like that, is that the number of overdoses that happened as the drugs change and we don't see heroin, we see fentanyl or acrofentanyl and stuff like that. Um, if someone dies of an overdose um, while they're still getting better, then, you know, then the game's over at that point. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that methadone and Suboxone do is that they reliably take care of withdrawal symptoms. Um, and I know that you, from your loved one's experience, sometimes the use continues because the withdrawal is horrible. Um, and, you know, I, most patients that I see will say, I don't experience euphoria or a high anymore from using opioids. I just don't feel sick for that two hours or three hours or something like that. So um, the withdrawal is um, significant. Um, and then we know with buprenorphine and methadone that reliably that they take care of that phenomenon of craving where that's all I can think about. I'm not going to feel, I'm going to be irritable, restless, and discontent unless I have something changing that dopamine in my brain that they reliably take care of that. Um, so that's, that's what those medicines do. Um, they do it a little bit differently. And, I, and then, you know, as an aside, naltrexone or Vivitrol, whether it be oral or a long-acting injection, that we know that it um, effectively blocks the risk of overdose um, like the other ones do. Uh, in December, Alchemy's the company who made Vivitrol, had to, they got sort of dinged by the, by the FDA and had to send out a disclaimer and change their packaging to say that um, Vivitrol does not, um, that there's the risk of, um, of overdose is pretty significant with Vivitrol. And I think one of the reasons is, is because it's not as clinically effective as the other two medicines. And therefore, if someone abruptly stops treatment, they have nothing to prevent an overdose. And mm -hmm. then, you know, your return to use, if you haven't been using the risk of overdoses through the roof, because you have no tolerance anymore either. Um, and then the idea of if someone's on Vivitrol and they're not having appropriate changes of those cravings and stuff like that, and they do try to use, if they just keep using and using and using until they get an effect, eventually they're going to override that blockade and die of an overdose. So mm -hmm. um, when Vivitrol was first came out, when it first rolled out, a funny story about it, it was not effective to, for treating opiate use disorders. And so it didn't get FDA approval. Um, it, they found this secondary marking that was very effective in, in alcohol use disorders, that it mm -hmm. reduced people's uh, heavy drinking days, it reduced their cravings, and more people achieved, you know, abstaining from alcohol. So that originally, that was what it was out for. Well, they went and did another study in Russia, where methadone and buprenorphine are illegal, and found that it was no worse than buprenorphine or methadone. So 
now El Camiso is very smart and the way that they marketed that medicine was they went to, they didn't really go to doctors very much. They really went to judges, probation officers and said, I can give a shot to your patients and they'll never be able to use opiates, which is again, incorrect. <laughs> but so then that's when you started having popping up all these Vivitrol courts. And it was like, you can be in jail or you can get Vivitrol. So what we found was a lot of people would get one or two injections and then they would just abscond from everything because they were never offered any other treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, though that has changed a lot just because, you know, drug courts and stuff can't get funded if they don't, if they put barriers to treatment and stuff like that now. But, but that, that was a, that was a big time. You know, the, the people who, Alkermes in Indiana will say, well, Dr. Greer's our number one prescriber. You know, somehow that means that I advocate that that's the first choice for everybody with an opiate use disorder. I'm like, well, I'm the number one prescriber because I see a lot of people <laughs> a, yes. and B because I use it a lot for alcohol use disorder because it, mm-hmm. it's very effective and it works well. So, um, but it, you know, for something, for the very highly motivated patient who has a lot of consequences, if they return to use, it is, a, it's a good agent to use. It's also really good if someone has been treated with buprenorphine or methadone and they've tapered off and they're not getting any medical treatment, it's an excellent choice for that too. Um, but to say that, you know, you have a 20 year old who's been using, you know, fentanyl for two years to put them in jail for, you know, 30 days. So they, and then give them Vivitrol before they leave. And that's the best choice it, it might be, but it usually is. Yeah. Well, I feel so. like with any of these That's medicines, like they're not going to be as effective for like, if you're trying to have a goal of like long-term recovery, if that is the only mm-hmm. thing you're, you're doing, like you're just relying on this like magical medication. Oh, I'm not going to mm-hmm. ever use again or have any problems of, you know, you're not like treating. Yeah. yeah any of the like underlying causes and working through those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that kind of leads into my question, which is, so my husband's been working recovery for five over five years now and started on Suboxone, you know, started down that mm-hmm. um, path of needing something that could assist with the withdrawals and that early recovery and kind of um, I guess graduated for lack of a better term to less, uh, support in that way and that got on Vivitrol and now um, I guess my question for you is like what is the trajectory for the medication assisted treatment how long is it uh, reasonable like are 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 they should they be could they be on Vivitrol or something like that as a safety net forever or does that I mean I know that there are some harmful parts on your body as well like it mm-hmm. could be hard on your liver and things. So like, I guess at what point um, do you kind of outgrow or get far enough along or your um, disease is in remission long enough that it doesn't make sense for these things. And then, because, because for me as a family member, Vivitrol is a safety net, right? Because I understand that it's a disease and something could trigger it. And at least I know that even if he has a slip up or something happens, like the chances that he will die are not likely, uh, which is a huge stress reliever, <laughs> you know, sure. when you really care about someone who has this, has this disease. So I guess, can you kind of talk a little bit more about like long-term recovery and what you're seeing as um, where medication helps in those situations or other treatments and interventions that can, that help sustain that um, when something like an opiate, you know, one time you've mentioned one time and it could be over, mm-hmm. um, which is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What is your advice on that? Yeah. 
Well, and I think it's when we go, now we look at just the individuality of treatment. So everybody who comes into treatment brings a different background. They bring in different risks. They bring in different comorbid things that have to be addressed. Um, you know, a 22 year old who was taking his parents' pills and then found that he couldn't get them anymore. So he's taken M30s, which are like pressed fentanyl that looks like a Percocet now. Um, you know, that, that's a lot, that brings in a lot different um, story than someone who's a woman who's 40 years old, who's been abused and traumatized her entire life, has been using the entire time. And then, um, you know, the Bone Recovery Center opened up in her neighborhood and she said, maybe I'll get treatment for the first time. Um, it, 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 because again, like you said, there's a lot of things that have to be remedied in that time period. Um, and uh, as far as um, taking care of the trauma, taking care of, you know, the, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, we have like a criteria that we look at on what kinds of things need to be addressed. And a lot of it's readiness to change, what recovery environment you live in, what other medical problems and psychiatric problems you have, um, uh, you know, uh, your response to treatment, the risk of um, intoxication and withdrawal. So we look at all those things and we say, you know, how intensive our services do we need to be? And then just recommending an intensity of services doesn't mean you always get them. Um, you know, I see a lot of patients that they, they meet the criteria, they need residential treatment. Well, we have a dearth of residential treatment availability to the poor um, in our state and in our country generally in this part of the, the country too. So um, sometimes medicines are continued um, for a long time because the risk hasn't mitigated completely yet. So, and there's no harm in that either. Um, again, when we go back to the chronic illnesses, um, you know, we don't tell people with diabetes, well, you've been on your Lantus and metformin for three years now, you should be better. So let's stop that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but we hear that a lot though. And I have patients all the time that say, my family says that I need to get off this mm -hmm. methadone. And I'm like, does your family remember what it was like before you were on the methadone? <laughs> you know, that's, you know, when, you were, <laughs> when you were stealing everything out of their garage. And, you know, I think that when people get better, they forget about how bad it was before. Mm -hmm. As far as methadone and buprenorphine, I get, methadone we have a lot of we have a lot of experience with. We've been using it since the, you know the '60s. The opioids are not new; they just are affecting white people now. But <laughs> there was a problem. There was a problem in the '70s too. No one really cared as much. But but there's yeah. I mean there's people that we that have been in treatment with methadone for 30 years. Okay, now most people don't know about it because it's again it's so stigmatized that it's not something that people routinely volunteer or anything. But um, and now it's getting better. But if you've been in treatment for 30 years, you're always going to feel stigmatized against no matter what changes. So mm -hmm. um, buprenorphine, we don't have as much literature about long-term use, but what, I mean, again, it's been approved for you since 2000. We've widely used it since about 2007 or eight. Um, but there are patients who've been on buprenorphine treatment that long too. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first got into this field, I was sort of like, well, that's a crutch. Yeah, I mean, I said all the things that I, you know, like bristle when people say now, but I was like, mm -hmm. you should, you know, you should be able to get off that, that kind of thing. And now I, I look at is that there's a continuum between I'm an active addiction I'm using every day and I am in the best recovery possible where I have no cravings and, and I have no interventions. As long as someone's in the middle there, then we're fine. Okay. Because we're not going to get optimal treatment in everybody taking away, we know two things about medicines for treatment. One is the longer people are in treatment, the longer they tend to do well. So this, when people started prescribing buprenorphine, especially in the Midwest, they would say, I'm going to keep you as low a dose as possible. And at six months, I'm going to taper it down. And no matter where you are. 
And so I got a lot of patients who said, well, I did really well with eight milligrams of buprenorphine, but then my doctor started tapering me and I started buying it on the street or using heroin again. And now, so I left and I'm coming to see you because I want to start anxiety. And so that- okay, we're back. We had uh, some technical difficulties that interrupted us kind of right in the middle. I think we were um, talking about just the long-term effects or viability of being on like medicine for um, substance use disorder. So I don't remember exactly what you were in the middle of saying, but if there are any, any like final things you wanted to say about that, I want to give you a chance to, to wrap that up. The two things I look at really with medicines are is um, the longer people stay in treatment, the better they do. And then stopping treatment because of some arbitrary number, like it's been 18 months, two years, that kind of thing um, is, is uniformly not a good, good thing to do. So they're like you, like you guys said, we, we put in all these different, we put in all these different uh, um, looking at, you know, where you are emotionally and mentally and, and that kind of thing. And and then make a, a decision together, meaning that the provider doesn't decide the family doesn't decide the patient is in treatment um, gets lots of information from everyone who has an, an, an investment in their recovery and then makes a decision. The, the other thing is too, is we don't just stop medicines cold Turkey. Usually Vivitrol we do, obviously we either give it or don't give it, but mm-hmm. um, the other ones sometimes titrating down or tapering medicines is a good indication of whether it's time or not. So um, I have patients who I'm tapering down their buprenorphine and they're like, I'm doing great. Everything's fine. And other ones are, I reduce it like by 5%. And I'm like, I was miserable the whole two weeks, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, well then. But I, I think success in recovery is not whether you're being treated with medicines or not. Success in recovery is, um, you know, are you reducing your use? Are all those aspects in your life getting better? And at the end of the day, are you still alive? Because this disease is just filled with stories of people who had episode after episode after episode of treatment and, you know, one of my favorite things to do with my friends who I've worked with for a long time in different arenas to say, you know, of course, protecting protective health information, but, you know, remember John in 2009, you know, he went back to the prison for the third time and, and now he has his kids back and he's working and um, he's leading a meeting on Sunday nights and, you know, we could even get him to go to a meeting on Sunday nights. Now he's responsible for it. And, um, wow. but what if we had given up on John in 2011 and said, you're hopeless, let's send you to prison for 20 years or let's stop your medicine or we're going to kick you out because you brought in someone else's urine for your, you know, that kind of thing. If we're going to, if we're going to make all those punishments and punitive actions, then John might be dead now. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you'll hear it in meetings. Don't leave until the miracle happens or don't leave before the miracle happens. So let's, you know, we, I, I'm, I'm old. I didn't, I didn't save for retirement well, so I'm going to be in working for a lot longer. The Kellys did a good job. They can retire, but I can't. So I'll, I'll stick around with people for a long time. As long as what I'm doing is not harmful with hopes that we're going to see something better. Um, Well, that's good for us, I think, because we need, you know, people working in this field who like care about people and are, have the knowledge and, and you seem like a good advocate for that. So I'm, I'm glad to know that you're working on it. <laughs> and I think it's a beautiful thing when someone, like we've talked about all of the work and championing people in long-term recovery, the amount of self-work that you have to do to really get over these things, like it makes 
it it brings out like such good qualities in people and makes them so self-aware and emotionally available. And I think that I, the, some of the most amazing people I know are in recovery. Mm -hmm. And if we all just worked on ourselves like that, you know, how great would like, it's just amazing like that, how this work, like it's hard and it's emotional and it's all of these things, but that really shapes a really great person and like like you said just gonna tie this back to my personal life but if I would have given up on my husband four years ago I mean I wouldn't be able to see today like he's an amazing father and like 100% engaged and just it's amazing and it's like this person that we talk about it all the time but this person this father this like he didn't have these examples and he had a lot of childhood stuff too and all this were all this the hard work that we had done mostly him but me as a bystander and a supportive person um over the last seven years if we hadn't gone through that he wouldn't be the person he is today and he wouldn't be there for our son and hopefully we have you know we hopefully we can make a better human (laughs) because of all the work that you know that has gone into Mm -hmm. this so I think what you're doing just plays right into that it's giving more people the opportunity to be their best selves and to have a loving environment to get well and to positively impact their families and larger the larger their larger communities and I don't know it gives me a lot of hope that beautiful things can come from this because it's a really dark place to start and then um it just creates some some really magical people so i i'm really grateful for what you're doing and what people like you are doing to give um our loved ones the opportunity to to recover yeah yeah well thank you dr greer i don't think that you understand how thankful and grateful like we are over the moon like we were all texting like oh my god this is amazing I mean (laughs) you you don't even understand like we're so excited to have you and just to mirror everything that we've all been saying like thank you for your work but like thank you for coming on with us and sharing so much of your knowledge and time like we just we can't thank you enough like we are so excited for this and, and hopefully for our listeners too yeah Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, Keep coming back to Boy Problems Podcast. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Boy Problems Podcast. If you enjoyed today's discussion, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this episode. Find us on social media, and if you have questions or ideas for topics, email us at hello at boyproblemspod.com.